Hey, why don't you guys get your Bibles open? Uh, we're going to be reading through Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah 29. Well, I'm thankful to be back with you guys after uh, not preaching last week. I heard Tyler did a great job, so thank you to him. Uh, I'm thankful to be looking at God's Word together. And the last time we taught, uh, we went through chapter 28. And I have uh, a reduced amount of time today, but I'm, I'm going to make sure and get through 29 because uh, we got some good stuff to look at next week when we talk about the resurrected King. And so um, we looked at chapter 28. We covered a ton of background. How many of you uh, got lost in the background last week? Go, go ahead. Raise your hands. Yeah, a few of you. Yeah. Uh, is, is that why the numbers are going up on the uh, online re-listening to it? Um, we did a lot of background, and we covered the idea that um, God's loving hand of discipline, of judgment, was coming upon the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. To just jump into chapter 29 of Isaiah, just like most of Isaiah, could be very, very confusing. But we realize that Isaiah is trying to speak to a people that are about to be taken over by the people of Assyria. Remember, Assyria was a large nation to the east, and they were coming in uh, to wreak havoc and take over. And they had already done so to Israel, the northern, uh, the northern nation of Israel. And now Judah, the southern nation, was about to be taken over as well. And God was bringing a foreign people to come up against Judah so that they might be humbled and that they might repent from their rebellion and scoffing towards him. Now remember that the story of the Old Testament up until this point is that the world was in rebellion against God. Our innate desire was to be our own God, was to be the one leading things and driving things and doing what we think is right. And there was no one, not one person, who worshipped the Creator God. So in Genesis chapter 12, God reached out and He grabbed a man by the name of Abraham, and He raised him up to be the father of a people, the Israelites. Now, Abraham was not chosen for any reason. It wasn't because he was tall. It wasn't because he was good-looking. It wasn't because, gosh darn it, people liked him, right? None of those reasons. He was chosen because of God's grace. And God set apart Abraham's family to be his people and to reflect God's heart of righteousness and justice and love to the world around them. And he was specific to tell those people that if they obeyed God's word, they would do their job of reflecting him to the world. But if they didn't, God was very sure to tell them that there would be discipline, and that discipline would come in the form of exile. Let's look at Deuteronomy here. This is from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 52. It says this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. This is if they don't obey the laws of God. From the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave your grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. That's from Deuteronomy 28. But Israel, as they came into their own land and gained prosperity, much like us, started to pull back away from the Lord and think that they could live as themselves in their own strength, not in the strength of the Lord. And they began to scoff against God, scoff against what He promised. And this resulted in Israel being drug off into exile and the division of the kingdom. And here we are in Isaiah 29, looking as Isaiah pleads with the people of Judah not to do the same thing, but to repent, 
from pushing away from God, to repent from scoffing against Him, to repent from thinking they could do it in their own strength. But Judah made their lives about anything and everything other than loving their Creator. It was not a priority for them. Religion was a priority, but a relationship with the Creator God was not. And so they would be overcome by their enemy. Isaiah preached and preached and prophesied and prophesied, calling them to repent. And so we enter chapter 29 with this situation in mind to see what God will speak through his prophet to the people of Judah. But I believe also this morning on Palm Sunday, as well as next week, he will also speak to us. What he will speak to us today is what you can entitle the notes for today, The Astonishing Salvation of God. The Astonishing Salvation of God. Let's hear what God's Word says to us. Chapter 29, verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Don't worry, I'll tell you what Ariel means in a second. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. The first thing that we see before us this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. God's salvation on display. Now, you might say, salvation, this sounds horrible. This sounds like he is the one that is bringing the enemy towards them and breaking down their walls and their fortress and besieging them. Well, he is, in a sense, he is allowing their brokenness and distance from him to be what separates them as this enemy comes. And in his sovereignty, he is doing a work where he is taking the brokenness of the world And he is using it to affect his people so that they can turn from what is destructive and embrace him. Judah was blatant in rebellion against the very God that had freed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land of promise. And to be in rebellion against God, folks, it would only and will only bring destruction. There is no way to hedge your bet. Being in rebellion against God is destructive. Sin is destructive in my life and in yours. And the loving God comes against them in a way to bring them low. And you see this picture of a person being brought low, so low it's as if they're prostrated flat on the ground, laying on their face before the authority of the king. That even if they speak, it's as if their voice will come from the dust like a ghost. That is the way to repent, is it not? to bow before the authority of God and say, I am nothing without you. I need you. God says, because I love you, Judah, I must humble you. I'm so thankful for the times in my life where the Lord has broken me in a moment that I thought I didn't need to be broken. And he brought me to a place where the only thing I had left was him. And I'm sure many of you have been in that exact same spot. And in the moment, it's hurtful and it it isn't what we want or desire, but coming out the other side, we see that God in love brings us through humility. 
Ariel here is a proper name. In, in Hebrew, it actually means lion, Ariel. And so Jesus eventually would be called the Ariel of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But it is used here to describe Jerusalem. And when he says, you shall be to me like an Ariel, there is not a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, commentators that agree on what that means. Maybe that it's a lion that's being brought low. We're not really sure. But he sarcastically tells them, keep doing your religious activities. In the midst of that, I will bring you low. He says, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. This is God through Isaiah being sarcastic, saying, you're getting nowhere with your religious activities because your heart is far from me. You can keep reading your Bible and praying and going to church and getting bigger Bibles and more impressive Bibles and going to more Bible studies, but if none of that is affecting you by making the gospel pierce you to your core so that you are changed and responsive to the gospel of Jesus, then it's worthless. Remember that the people of Judah were good at this. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 1. They tithed like crazy. They sacrificed like crazy. They prayed many words, he says in Isaiah 1. They celebrated the feasts, but none of it was doing them any good. Why? Because their hearts were against God. So what will the outcome be? It will be to bring them low, to break them down. And then amazingly, in the midst of this very moment, the midst of discipline is where the Lord's love visits the people. Because this is the astonishing gospel of God's salvation. Confession time. Heard a great phrase this last week. Pastoral confessions fit for public consumption. You ever notice how pastors give like these light confessions about things they kind of did wrong just so that they still appear pastoral? You ever notice that, right? Maybe this is one of those, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Yesterday, I was sitting in my study getting ready for today, and all I hear, because I have noise-canceling headphones on in order to pay attention to what I'm doing because I have children. You guys know how that goes, right? All of a sudden, I hear this giggling and then this loud crash, and I look over and I see one of my sons who's six, and he's big, but he's not that big. He had been carrying my daughter who, yes, I am one of those fathers who my, I'm wrapped around my daughter's finger, right? I'm very protective of her. He had been carrying her, and he slipped and fell and dropped her. So daddy instinct went off, even if it was in family, and I immediately was, what did you do to your sister? Now, I don't know about you, because I haven't met anybody bigger than me very often in life, right? But I know if, if I had somebody who was like seven, eight doing that to me, I would be a little bit intimidated, right? So my poor son is like, oh no, because he already feels bad that he dropped her. He's hurting. He's scared to death because it was the exact spot that he fell and broke his arm earlier in the year. So trauma, all sorts of stuff going on. I'm too dumb to realize it. So I just bark at him, okay? Then he starts crying. And I think to myself, what have I done? Rather than disciplining him correctly in a loving way, I bark at him and shame him. And now, not because of goodness, but because of repentance, I have to repent to my son and to my daughter and get down on one knee and fix the situation. And so I did so, and, and my heart was saying, get back to the study. Not, my, not God's heart, my heart was saying, get back to the study. Don't worry about it. They'll be fine. But I saw in my son's eyes that he was broken. 
He was broken because he'd been shamed by his dad. He was broken because he hurt his little sister. He was just sad. And my son John is very sensitive. And so I stopped what I was doing and went out and sat with him for a little while and just let him cuddle with me. And slowly but surely, I saw him gain that love and that understanding back that he was loved. That's what our Lord does for us. His discipline is never shame. It's never condemnation. It is always loving conviction to us that we are doing something harmful. What it would have looked like if I had truly followed the example of God is I would have gone to my son early and said, brother, does that seem like a good idea? And that's what the Lord does with us by His Spirit and His Word. And then when we are broken in, those midst, in the midst of it, He comes to us and He lovingly comforts us and He fights against our foe, our enemy, the adversary who wants to condemn us and shame us, and He brings us victory and freedom. And this is what He does here. In the midst of being attacked by Assyria, Isaiah says, you must repent and be brought low. The Lord will bring you low. But then he jumps in in verse 8 or verse 5 and says this miraculous thing. He says, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. Yes, the Lord will humble you, he says, but don't worry about your foes, your enemy. They shall be like dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like the passing chaff. In other words, they'll be blown away. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts. Remember, that means commander of the heavenly army. With thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel or Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and they distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. In other words, it will disappear. It will be like, he says, when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating in his dream, but then he awakes and his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and he awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Isaiah is saying that in the midst of your being brought low, the Lord still is faithful to you, and he will protect you and love you and bring you salvation. Not because they have earned it, in spite of the fact that they haven't earned it. That is the grace of Jesus Christ. That while we are yet sinners, Christ says, I'll die for you. While you are yet broken, I will restore you. This is the astonishing salvation of Jesus Christ. It's not earned, it's given freely. And Isaiah speaks prophetically of God's instant and sudden response on behalf of his people. We get to see this prophecy taking place almost in real time, so to speak, in the Bible, in 2 Kings 18. Why don't you turn with me to 2 Kings, actually 2 Kings 19. Go to 2 Kings 19, and we're going to start in verse 5. 2 Kings 19, we're going to be covering verses 5 through 7. Hezekiah is the reigning king in the land of Judah, and the king of Assyria sends his armies under the command of a guy named Rabshakeh. I like how uh, my last pastor taught it. His name was Rabshakeh in the English, and he's a trash-taka, trash-talker. So you can remember it, Rabshakeh the trash-taka, okay? Yeah, it's, it's corny, but it'll help you remember. Okay, Rav Shake, uh, the, the Hebrew name, he confronts Hezekiah, and he says, you guys are doomed, you're done, right? Now, any of you that have ever played basketball, you know how this goes, right? You go up to the, the line to supposedly shake hands. Yeah, right. 
And you shake hands and you look them in the eye and you, you get in their grill a bit, right? That's what he was doing. He was saying, you're done. You're done. I'm taking you down. You guys are in big trouble. Well, Hezekiah immediately mourns. He tears his clothes. He covers himself in ashes and sackcloth. And he sends servants to Isaiah, the man of God, the prophet of God. And here's what he says in 2 Kings 19.5. When the servants of the king, Hezekiah, came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Hezekiah hears this, and he's emboldened, he's strengthened, because God is doing a work. And so he takes the next letter that he gets from Rabshakeh, the Trashtakeh, he takes it, and he goes to the temple, and he lays it out before the Lord. You ever done this? Where you get some news or, or something that is bothering you, and you go to the Lord, and you lay it out before him, and you cry out and say, Hosanna, save now, Lord. Save us. If you haven't done that, I would recommend it because the Lord visits in those moments. And here's what happens. He lays it before the Lord and take a look at verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear. O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, Hosanna, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God alone. He uses that same word that we prayed in the, the psalm there and sang in the first song, Hosanna, save now. Why? So that the world may know that you are king. See, the Lord visits us as his people, and he emboldens us in our work to the world for one purpose, to show that he is king. And as we take part in that, God responds. And he responds through Isaiah here. And he says the Assyrians will be destroyed and God will save them. Take a look at verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, they were probably mad because of the bad names he gave them, they struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, raised, reigned in his place. The, the Lord will show up. And his salvation was on display for all the people to see. And Isaiah prophesies, if you go back to Isaiah 29 here, he prophesies to the people, guys, 
It may seem like we are destroyed, but God is faithful to his people. Watch God's salvation on display, and God visits them and destroys the enemy. And so you would think that that message of salvation on display would pull them towards the Lord, but for some reason it hardens them. Why? Because they, the people of Judah, the leaders, had worked out an alliance with the kingdom of Israel. And they thought to themselves, we're fine. We don't need the Lord. We've got this or we've got that. We've got our alliance with Egypt. We pulled ourselves by up, up by our bootstraps. We are okay. We can do this. And so we see next what Isaiah will say to the people, and we'll see God's salvation rejected. God's salvation rejected. Isaiah 29, verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore... Behold, I will again do wonderful things. Now, I don't know about you, but if I read that, in my head is the sound of a record player. Yes, I know many of us don't have record players anymore, right? Should have gone with eight tracks, Hans. Record players. Turning the wrong way. Er, what? what? What did you just say? Because if it were me in my humanness, I would say, because your heart is not near me, you're done. Go to the corner. But for some reason... The astonishing grace of God says, because you are far from me, behold, I will do wonderful things. Oh, is this not the heart of Jesus? Is this not the heart of the good Father that we serve? Again, while we are in sin, he visits us. What sense does that make? It is astonishing. But it's who our God is. He says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah speaks of the people stumbling around drunk. Remember last time I taught in Isaiah 28, the leaders were so drunk that they were, I know this is gross, but they were vomiting on the tables. The tables that they were supposed to serve, they were filling it with the vomit of their drunkenness because they were so excited with their earthly alliances and the things that drew their hearts on this earth. And they couldn't even serve God's people. And they were leading a people, and all of them were existing in this blindness and sleepiness where they can't even see God's message of safety and salvation. Is this God forcefully closing their eyes? 
No, remember. Remember that when God's Word, God's truth is spoken to us, every single time we read it, every single time we hear it, one of two things is going to happen. Either you will embrace the truth and your heart will be softened and drawn towards Jesus and His people, or you will be hardened by it. The gospel will either soften or harden. Woe to us if we are contrary for contrary's sake. Woe to us if we are rebellious simply to be standing firm on our own two feet. When the gospel pierces our ears, it needs to pierce our heart. And what was happening with the people of Judah was that they were being hardened against it the more they heard it. And it's not God doing the hardening, it's the people themselves. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 9 there. Astonish yourselves, blind yourselves. The vision of this has become like words of a book that is sealed, it says. And so when it's offered to people who can read it, they say, meh, it's too hard to understand. I'm going to just leave it on the shelf. I've got the basic idea. I'll just leave it there. No need for me to read it. Or maybe they can't really even read it, and so someone hands it to them, and they say, well, I can't read it. Why would I even try? I'm a new believer. I, I can't read this stuff, Isaiah 29. Hans can read it. He'll tell me what it is. Well, yeah, you need some teaching, but don't, don't cast aside the Holy Spirit working in you. That put together with the teaching of, of more experienced Christians will bring you to a point of understanding. Don't just put it away. The people found excuse after excuse to be apathetic toward the message of God. It's too hard for me. I don't even know where to start. We do it ourselves. We blind ourselves because we're not willing to be pierced by the truth of God. Maybe it's not apathy, but maybe it's straight rebellion that keeps us from it. Look ahead to chapter 30 of Isaiah, starting in verse 8. We'll see this the next time, uh, not Easter, but the time after that when I go through chapters 30 and 31. Look at what it says in chapter 30, verse 8. God tells Isaiah, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book, that it may be for them for a time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see. And to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. You catch that? Smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Paul said something similar to Timothy about the church. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Notice that word endure, guys. The literal translation of it is put up with. Now, I know that you guys understand this because I'm a pastor you got to put up with sometimes, right? Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. If you only ever hear things or listen to podcasts or read books that only ever agree with you, how do you ever know if you're being challenged? I find that we as Christians all too often fall into that tribalism where we say, well, I have one person I trust, and they tell me who to trust, and then I trust them. But man, let the Spirit lead you and guide you. Don't be people who only want to hear the smooth things that are easy to hear. Listen for the hard things that challenge you and change you. Oh, Lord, God, forgive us 
Forgive us for being unwilling to dig into your word and hear that which is hard for us. We want what itches our ears, but we should desire what transforms us. Now, notice something very interesting with me here. Were these atheists that he was talking to? Were these people that were completely against the Lord? No, they weren't turned away from God. Look at verse 13 back in Isaiah 29. These were worshipers, so-called, of Yahweh. The Lord says, because this people draw near me with their mouth. What does that mean? They give intense prayers, man. And honor me with their lips. They praise and they give good worship. Their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. These weren't atheists. What we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah is that these were the most religious people. They prayed, they tithed, they sacrificed, they attended temple, they kept the Sabbath, they kept the feasts, but yet their hearts were far from God. Now, why would they waste time being religious? How many of us on a Sunday, we get up in the morning and we go, man, I wish I had that hour and a half back today. Or for those of us that set up and tear down and then have meetings all day, I wish I had that 12 hours back today, right? Many of us. Because it takes a lot to jump in and truly worship the Lord. Why would they do that if their hearts were far from God? I would suggest to you it's because they misunderstood the good Father. They misunderstood who they were serving. They thought that they could work their way not to salvation, but out of defeat and exile. Not to salvation, but out of defeat and exile. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Jesus is going to quote this same passage. And I think this situation will help us view a little bit about the people that Isaiah is speaking to. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. If you go to the Western Wall today or many other places... You go into the bathroom that is just to the left. It's kind of, you know, holy ground and then the bathroom. But like you go over there and you go in and they've got all these cups that are tied to the sink and these cups are used for washing your hands. The Pharisees believed that before you ate, you needed to take half an eggshell amount of water. Don't ask me how they figured that out. And wash one hand with it and then half an eggshell and wash it the other way, right? Very, very specific. And so, Jesus' disciples weren't doing this. This was not a command of the Bible. It was a command of men. Now, be careful. We like to beat up on the Pharisees. Why did they initially make up more rules? Because they wanted to make sure that they weren't breaking the original rules that God did give them. See, it always starts that way. It starts with a heart to desire and follow God even more than he requires. Because, man, if I step away from that line and I step far back from it, then I'm following him. But if we're not extremely careful, if we're not extremely careful of keeping that law, that rule in the proper perspective, we can also start to move into a place where now it's not the heart of God that is our motivation and his gospel, but it's just simply earning 
the goodness on our own. And so the Pharisees, verse 5, and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, we immediately take this idea of legalism and we say, oh, they were trying to earn God's good grace. They were trying to earn salvation. But is that how they thought? No, it wasn't. Pharisees were good Jews. Now, Old Testament, how did you earn the salvation of God? According to the Jews, you were a Jew. You were born a Jew, you were saved. You had to get circumcised to, to, to keep the outward appearance. If you were a female, what did you do? You stayed married to a Jew. You were Jewish. So to the Pharisees, did they have salvation already? Absolutely. They weren't trying to earn salvation. They were in salvation. So why were they working so hard? Well, remember what we first read in Deuteronomy, that if you disobey God, you will go into exile. The Pharisees were doing their best to lead the people of God in obedience so that they could earn God's not salvation, but God's freedom and removal from exile. This is so much like us as Christians. Life goes wrong because we buy into this false prosperity gospel and we suddenly think, well, maybe I got to try harder in order to make God love me more. We can be in salvation, but then we go, oh, I must not be reading my Bible enough. I must not be. Well, guys, um, there is, I mean, just listen to the last, I don't even know, 10 teachings I've done. There is this understanding that we have to have that we must respond to the gospel. It's costly. We have to respond in lives of righteousness and justice and gospel light to the nations. But that's never because we're trying to make God happy with us. It's because he already is. And these Pharisees, they were going crazy about trying to keep the law in order to get themselves out of exile. And the whole time, they were far from God. Why? Because they misunderstood his character. They thought that he was a terrible father who didn't want anything good for them and that they needed to earn his love. And what the Pharisees were doing was trying to get the people to walk in that obedience. What they didn't realize, though, was that Jesus is trying to tell them now that we cannot work our way back into God's good graces. You can't. I can't. There is nothing we can do. We are that sinful. Nothing we can say. We have simply broken the heart of God that created us. And this was the story of the garden. God's grace was what gave Adam and Eve life and gave them breath. God's grace was what created the world and provision for them. And yet they, like we, rebelled against it. And it wasn't just the disobedience of Eve and eating the fruit that God had told her not to. It was the fact that she, from the beginning, did not trust him. That she didn't trust him. And all it took was one word from the accuser. Did he really say that? Can you really trust God? Look at your life. Can you really trust him? No, of course not. I need to take it on my shoulders. I need to do the works. It was not trusting that God is good and what he desires for us and asks of us is good too. And so just like the Judahites, we flip the truth on its head and we make ourselves the one in control and we make God in our image. We become the potter. He becomes the clay. 
But that's just not possible. But here is the amazing part. In the middle of this kind of hardness of heart and rebellion, while Judah is in the midst of sin, we see the astonishing goodness and grace of Christ shine through. We see God's salvation proclaimed. God's salvation proclaimed. Let's look back at Isaiah 29, starting in verse 14, and we'll finish out the chapter. Or excuse me, verse 17, we'll finish out the chapter. Is it not a very, yet a very little while, until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. In the midst of this hardness of heart, Isaiah stands up and proclaims this topsy-turvy gospel that rather than bringing what is deserved by the people, destruction, he speaks the fact that God will do this wonderful, astonishing thing. And what is that thing? Well, we have the wonderful privilege of 2020 hindsight. What is that astonishing thing that God talked about his entire Old Testament? It's the cross. It's the cross on which his son died for you and for me. It is the work of destroying all that the enemy has done and raising to life anew the restored creation and placing his son as the king over that creation. And this makes no sense to us, does it? It's not logical. But that's why Isaiah said in verse 14, uh, the wisdom of the wise, it shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul uses this same mentality when he says, to the church of Corinth in the first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Sorry, I'm slow. I got a new Bible here. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why does he say that? Because the wisdom of the world would to, be give, them, to, to give them what they deserve, destruction, and to give you and I what we deserve, destruction. But he says, for since, the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is folly for me to stand up here Sunday after Sunday and for you to come in and to bring non-believers and for me to say to them, you are terrible. 
You are a sinner in need of a Savior. Who wants to hear that? That's folly. And even more so to say, in the midst of your sin, while you were at your worst, God loved you the most. And he called you to draw you out of that sin and make you his child. And his salvation is there for the taking simply by crying out, save us, Hosanna. And then letting that love and that gospel truth pierce to the center of our hearts and realize that he is now our king who commands us in a life of righteousness and justice and love. That is the astonishing foolishness of his gospel. He says in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, the wisdom of God would be for us to be destroyed. But the wisdom of men, or of, uh, excuse me, the wisdom of men would be for us to be destroyed, but the wisdom of God is for us to be saved. And this was foolishness. It was foolishness to Judah. It was foolishness to the Pharisees. They would have said our very motivation is to cleanse ourselves from sin. But the cross says God came to the earth for the very motivation of taking on your sin. See, we can't cleanse ourselves. Only God can do that. And he did that on the cross. This is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it flips everything upside down. In his astonishing grace, he will make those places that were fruitless fruitful. He will take non-believers and make them believers. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the meek will inherit the earth, the ruthless will come to nothing, and those that wrongly accuse, they will be the ones convicted. And the very shame of the people of Israel, the shame of their father Jacob will be removed. How many of us in here today desire for our shame to be taken away? Those that were once leading by their own spirit will come to understanding of God's Holy Spirit. Those that were once complete, in complete rebellion against God will accept his instruction by his word. All the fallout of sin and brokenness in the world would one day be removed. And what he was talking about, what Isaiah was speaking of, is the astonishing salvation of God. And these are the things that Jesus himself came to proclaim You see, when Jesus came, he didn't look anything like the wisdom of the world wanted him to, a military commander, a strong, powerful king like Saul. And so even those who were for him, like his own cousin, John the Baptist, who had been preaching for him and baptized him, they wondered and they said, man, what is going on, Jesus? This doesn't make any logical sense. It's astonishing. And this is what happened. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The very things that that Jesus reminds John of are the very things that Isaiah states is the astonishing and confusing way of God. This may not be what makes sense to you and I, but it is what must occur for salvation to come, that God, the infinite God who created us, came as a man incarnate in flesh, both holy God and holy man, fit to pay the price for infinite sin so that we could be one with him. 
You see, we want so badly to work our way to God, and it is the way of every religion that man has made up, but it's only the good news of Jesus Christ that is different. This morning, each of us here must know and understand that this book that we hold in our hands, God's very word to us, is meant to show us over and over again God's salvation on display. Just like with the Judahites, we see in here every moment that God wants to save you and I from the sin that we have done and the sin that has been done to us. And our initial response, unfortunately, is to refuse it, to hold it at a distance. I can be good enough, we say. I can be kind enough to work my way to God, to restore my relationship with my Creator. I can gain it back. I know I can. And yet we fall and fall and fall and fall again. In so doing, we see God's salvation rejected. And so today, one week before we celebrate the risen Lord on Resurrection Sunday, I want to give you God's salvation proclaimed. In the midst of a world that was in rebellion against its creator, God loved you and me and his creation so much that he sent his son born in human flesh to minister to us in a way that reflected his heart towards us and the heart of the Father to free the oppressed, heal the sick, raise up the poor, free those in prison. He died a death he did not deserve to pay our debt and remove our shame. Jesus was raised to rule the kingdom of those who followed him, and he is coming to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom for all eternity. And this morning, he is asking you, just as he did every single one of those people in Judah, he's asking you if you desire to cry out, Hosanna, save me, Lord. Save me now. Maybe you're a believer and you've wandered from him or your heart is hardened against him. Today, the same thing is asked of you. Cry out and say, save me, Lord. Save me, please. Blessed is the king and his kingdom. And he's asking you to submit to his reign in your life. Maybe you're a believer here today and you have done this before where you've had the moment of emotion that caused you to cry out to God, but then you went about your other priorities. Maybe today is the day where he calls you to be his loyal citizen and subject that follows him all of your days. Today, my friends, is the Lord's day. And we choose to rejoice and be glad in it because it is the day of our salvation.